Hello, lovely humans. I'm Wildly, and you are listening to Sex Stories, a podcast about one of the universal human experiences that this world has to offer and that supports our sexplorations by reminding us that there are tons of others out there who can totally relate to what we're going through. Our guest today is a 34-year-old cis bisexual male who's partnered in an ethically non-monogamous relationship of 15 years. He's a gentleman dom, he's into sadism, exhibitionism, and sex with his friends, and has recently been investing time into shibari. He works in special rescue and emergency medicine, hails from the Pacific Northwest, and will shortly after our recording be heading to Eastern Europe to help with the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. So we want to offer him all kinds of love and well wishes. Big, big love and welcome, Scott. Hello. This is very exciting. I'm extremely excited. And I'm excited to know if you had to rate yourself on a sexual shame o scale, with 10 being the most full of sexual shame and one being the least, where do you fall right now? So I'm probably at a three, and by the end of this conversation, it'll be down to like a one. Yay! Okay, tell me if you notice when it's happening. I would love to hear like, I'm at a two now, I'm at a one. I will absolutely keep you up to date. I think it kind of depends on who I'm around and who I'm talking with. Interestingly enough, I find that people who I am just meeting, I tend to have a lower shame meter mm. versus people who I've known for longer who might not necessarily know everything about me or knows me in a particular way as in professional, social. And it just has never come up that like, oh, yes, I do like to spank people. So. <laughs> That's such a good point that you just articulated because I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, oh, yeah, when I meet a new stranger, I'm just like, hi, a stranger, I'm regular. And then I have recently had the experience of meeting someone who's like, oh, I've listened to that podcast. And I was like, <gasps> Like it was such a weird jolt of just like surprise. I think especially there's an aspect of community, this community in particular, but I think it kind of extends actually from the queer community. How I read that one of the kind of universal aspects of queer community is the search for others and the attempts to form that community. And so it is very interesting to me when I do suddenly meet somebody and they're like, oh, are you this? And it's like, I, I am. And they're like, oh, excellent. We can, we can be friends, can't we? We can be friends at a different level than other people that you would meet at the bar. It's really kind of fun. Okay. So we're hearing little snippets of kinky already. Can you give us a quick overview of what your sex life is like right now and maybe a favorite part or two? So it's pretty awesome and it's moving in some pretty cool directions. Nice. I have a primary partner who is the absolute love of my life, has been for 15 years now. Wow. So we hooked up and we're just like, ah, we'll just keep hooking up. And at any point in time, one of us can leave. And we've just never really left. Cool. 10 years ago now, we got married. Question <laughs> mark. <laughs> <laughs> but every single year, and it used to be our like dating anniversary, and now it's our wedding anniversary, we still have a kind of a pro forma, like, hey, uh, you want to do like another year with me? It's like, yeah, I, I think I'd like to do another year with you. It's like, okay, cool. Cause I don't feel like I'm done with you. It's like, yeah, uh. I don't feel like I'm done with you yet either. Yeah. That's just there. So there's always like this annual check-in of just like, you still want to do this? Yeah. I still want to do this. I love that. So then it sounds like you also have other partners. I do. So I have a girlfriend now who I was in no way looking for. Surprise girlfriend. Best kind. It, yeah. It was just one of those like, oh yes, we're going to go and have a date, maybe hook up and stuff like that. And it's just like down the emotional rabbit hole. <laughs> and that's great. It's absolutely wonderful. And then I have a couple of what I like to call comets. So somebody that kind of comes in maybe once, maybe twice a year, wow. get to see them for a little bit and then we'll pick it up whenever that comes back. Amazing. And then just for context, to the outside world, are you in like a hetero passing or homo passing relationship with your primary? Uh, hetero. Okay, okay. Yeah, my primary partner is a woman, identifies as a bisexual female. Yeah. Oh, queer couple, hot. Nobody would really look at us and be like, oh, something might be different. Other than the fact that we like wear rainbow surgical masks. 
<laughs> Love it. Okay. Can you tell us also now, what does sexy mean to you? What is sexy with your definition? What is sexy? Yeah. So sexy has so many different like variations and nuances. This is probably one of the hardest questions. It's got a lot of different types of answers, like a lot of different textures to answer. Yeah. So usually sexiness to me is kind of born from an innate confidence that everybody has. And for some people, it's a little bit stronger. Some other people, it might be a little bit latent. But like whenever I'm talking to somebody who doesn't think of themselves as sexy, I really try to like remind them and just be like that there is this like powerful creature inside of you that expresses itself in different ways. And when somebody kind of feels that or is knowledgeable of that for themselves, that is sexy to me. Yeah. What about things that are just like you look at and you exclaim, oh, that's sexy. Like, do you have any like visual triggers or anything like that? Or I guess a trigger is a bad thing, but like it could be a sexy trigger. I mean, I'm pretty partial to redheads. My parents are redheads. It's just like super petite. She's a mountain sports adventurer. And so, yeah, that definitely does it. And then actually my girlfriend is, is like completely different. My primary partner is like smaller than I am, quite significant. My girlfriend is about the same height and stuff as I am. Cool. Yeah. So it really kind of depends. I was always into like alt girls and emo before I did anything professional. I was like, when I showed up to the fire Academy, I still had like earrings and like long red bangs, <laughs> like the early Amazing. 2000s red emo bangs. And it turns out that like earrings get hot in fires. Good call. Yeah, I made the mistake of wearing earrings into a sauna once, only once. <laughs> Can you tell us now, what is your current understanding of consent, the concept of consent? And did you ever learn about it explicitly growing up? I think that part of my role in a top position or a dom position is potentially helping somebody, especially if they're new to kink, to kind of help guide them through a better understanding of what consent is. So to me, consent is the ability for you as a person to make a decision that is going to benefit you in the future. And if you are going to make one which you are not sure of, to allow for the mistake to be made and to go back and readjust what you had originally felt. Because if you're doing something brand new, there's no way to know if you're going to like it or not. Just because you said yes and then don't like it doesn't mean that you have consented to continue at that point. And even as a kid, I was always told by my parents, and they're very explicit with the word consent, actually. Amazing. Yeah, that consent was everything and that it was never morally ethical or right to force a person to do anything they are not comfortable with or do not have the ability to understand. Your parents yeah. sound amazing. <laughs> Can we jump to what that was like growing up with them? Like, what were they like? What was the household like? Yeah, it was very weird. So I come from a household of extremely deliberate communicators. So my dad worked in media and communications. My mother was a ballet dancer. And so I know that like growing up, when they were young adults and stuff like that, it was in the 80s in the dance community. So everybody was gay. Yeah. You know, there were no male partners weren't kind of gay. Right. And I know the AIDS epidemic hit that community really hard. And so it was never an unusual thing for me to grow up to be like, you know, my mom might have some friends over and it's just two guys. And it's like, oh, yeah, they're dancers and they're together. And it was just, okay, whatever. It was just an accepted aspect of just like, yeah, two guys can be together and two women can be together or a guy and a woman can be together. Did you grow up in a big city? Yeah, I grew up in downtown Baltimore. Oh, wow. Okay, so take us back for a second, though, because I'm getting out of order. I do want to hear, what is your first memory of sex? James Bond. 
GoldenEye. <laughs> and so I knew something was going on because like, I'd obviously like, I'd see my parents kiss. And then on the screen, I'm like, oh, look, they're kissing kind of a thing. And I distinctly remember my mom being like, James Bond has a lot of sex and he's not always nice about it. And I was just like, oh, okay. So there's the potential for not nice. Interesting. And I do remember her telling me something like, because obviously like, I really like James Bond. And she was just like, oh, you just have to be like nicer and better to people than what you necessarily see in James Bond. But that also comes from because of the way that I grew up and with my father working in media, we were always taught, my sister and I, that nothing in media is real. Amazing. It is always edited. There is always a perspective. Even if that perspective is minimized as much as possible, there's still an editor that was involved. And so that nothing I see on television is A, real. Nothing on the internet later ever is real. And, you know, like even if you're listening to like a CD and listening to a band in a studio, that is different than how it will sound live. And so there was always this baked in representation that media is not entirely real. You might be the first person I have spoken to that has that explicit, like I'm just thinking right now about the kind of like explicit upbringing, the small amount that I know about your upbringing right now is so much more information than I had until, you know, the last decade of like really figuring it out and going to film school and learning all of that stuff. Your mind's going to be blown when I tell you what my mom first told me about sex and like why you have sex. What is it? She said, you have sex because it feels good. How old were you? Nine or 10. Wow. What did you say? I was like, yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> I don't know what that means. How did it come up? Do you remember? Yeah. So my parents had always been like, you know, you can ask us anything you want. And so I might come up with a question or hear something mm -hmm. and it might take me, you know, two, three weeks to work up the courage to finally ask it. Mm -hmm. And inevitably I'm thinking this is going to be some big deal. And then they're like, oh yeah, we have sex because it feels good. And you're just like, oh, okay. Well, I'm not sure what to do with that information right now, but I'm going to file it away in my little nine-year-old brain. And every other conversation that I have going forward is going to kind of have the understanding of like, oh yeah, sex is supposed to feel good. You know, that's one of the reasons you have it. Like there was the whole like reproduction side of things, but that was a reproduction and sex were two different things. Wow. I'm one of those people where I grew up and managed to escape childhood with very, very little damage. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds like you were given a lot of tools with which to function and to take care of yourself. And what I also heard in that story is that you did not rush off right away to try to do your own version of feeling good sex. Like, it sounds like you filed away the information. But I, I would love to hear, when do you remember starting to explore with yourself? I knew that if I laid down on the ground and was, like, kind of hard, that if I slid along the ground, that felt good. What kind of ground? <laughs> It's like the carpet, the carpet? Like, okay. on, on like a bed. So you're just like randomly humping a pillow. Inside or pants or were you naked? Yeah. Okay. It's I don't know. Inside got it, got it. Okay. Okay. When do you remember when you started figuring that out? And then when you started figuring out that was sexual, technically speaking? I was probably nine or 10. It wasn't necessarily explicitly stated that it was sexual until like 11 or 12. Okay. I do remember like my mom being like, oh, what are you doing? And me explaining like, this feels really good. She's like, okay. So I'm not going to tell you to not do that, but you should do that in your room with the door closed. That was another time when consent actually was brought up because I was told just because I like to do it does not mean that other people want to watch it. Mm. And so I thought that was a really interesting aspect of like, oh, right. Just because somebody's passing by does not mean that they have consented to seeing something that they are definitely do not want to see. 
And so that's also been kind of an aspect of kind of what I consider or at least did when I was younger. And I think it's kind of just kind of baked into my mentality now. Totally. I read the book Beyond Birds and Bees by Bonnie J. Ruff, and she noodles deeply, the author noodles deeply on raising kids with this idea of like, no, don't do that in public because of the possible shame element of it. But it also sounds like you had the emotional context to be able to understand, like in the upbringing where your parents are like, hey, actually, we do talk about things and like, hey, actually, we do talk about explicit consent. I think it's so cool that you could have that concept offered to you in a way that didn't induce shame that didn't just be like, oh, we hide it away in a closet. It was just like, hey, you got to consider other people, which that's fucking beautiful. Yeah. And that's really what it was. It's just like, hey, be considerate of somebody else. I love that. And context is everything. If you're at a family reunion with a bunch of people who tend to be a little bit more conservative, then perhaps as a teenager, having your girlfriend you know, straddle you while you make out on the couch might not be the most appropriate even though it's perfectly fine if you do that upstairs. Totally. And I, I just really love the framework of like, well, let's just try to do our best so that we can all be here. Like, let's just try, you know, like, let's try to not fuck with each other too much, you know? And of course, when people have really different needs, that gets increasingly difficult. If there's more people. I understand that. What I would like to know from you is how did this affect your like social standing? Like you have such a different social experience from most people I've talked to. What was it like talking to friends about sex? Oh, my friends were useless. <laughs> really? Yeah. Were you the knowledge bearer? Yeah, it seemed like that. Okay. Or at least I was the one who felt comfortable taking them the lead. That makes sense. Well, and I was going to ask if you think that that relates to your formation as a dom, because it sounds like you have greater emotional tools at a younger age than most people I have spoken to. And so I formulate a story where it's like, well, of course he has to hold the space. At a really early age, I began to realize that I had the ability to curate an experience. How young of an age? Between eighth and ninth grade, even. Wow. So like 13, 14. So something that my parents said was that I should only have sex with someone who makes you feel comfortable or loved and is a safe person to be vulnerable to. And I interpreted this to mean, oh, so most of my friends would be good candidates to have sex with. You know, I'm here for it. I mean, that's literally how it happened. I spent summers, whole summers with friends. And primarily, I, I didn't have that many male friends who I would actively hang out with. It was mostly women. And it just got to the point where they would kind of forget that I was even there or that it was unusual that there might be a guy there. So they'd be talking about like kissing their boyfriends and stuff like that. And inevitably, one of them would just be like, well, there's a boy in the corner. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, let's go kiss him. And it's just like, wait a minute. <laughs> really? That's amazing. It was really bizarre. And where I grew up was, at least in my experience, the general vice was not so much like drugs or alcohol. It was sex. Wow. I wish I'd grown up there. I mean, I mean, maybe it was different where I grew up and I just didn't know about it. That's actually entirely likely. Can you fill in the timelines for us? Like from when did you really start masturbating? Not just like rubbing on the floor, feeling good. Like did touching yourself come first? Did kissing partners come first? Did exploring with partners come first? Walk us through your landscape history. We're going down to shame meter two. Ooh, great. I love it. I love knowing that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was... 12 the first time i ejaculated and i was just like whoa what the hell was that where were you do you remember did it go somewhere did you get to look at it afterward i was hanging out on the floor of my bedroom i was just like oh shit balls <laughs> i should probably clean that up now and then a bunch of things happened around that time so this was right when i was kind of going from having like friends who were guys to mostly female friends mm. but there were some neighborhood guys we would go on like backyard camping trips kinds of things and we were constantly like jacking each other off or like sucking each other off so i had never even kissed a girl before i had sucked my first cock amazing 
How did that come about? Did, who was the initiator usually? And like, how did it fit into your understandings of consent? I mean, I remember being like curious of like, huh, I wonder what that would be like to yeah. <laughs> to build my mouth around that. Hey, can I do this? <laughs> and then be like, uh, sure. It's like, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> You know, and then two minutes later, then being like, well, that felt really good. It's like, yeah, I know. Amazing. And then also at that time, so the way my brain tends to work is if I don't know how to do something, I go and search out how to do it. And we had always had computers growing up, even personal computers, actually. Mm -hmm. So even by the time I was like 12, I had my own personal computer. And so I just remember typing into like a search bar, like sex. And realizing that my dad, who obviously works in technology, had put blockers and stuff like that and just like couldn't access it. And I was just like, huh, interesting. And I think that like within a week or so, my parents had like subtly brought up, you know, like, oh, were you looking for information kind of kind of situation? But, you know, I didn't want to get my information from my parents because I assumed that it was edited and somehow. And so I hacked my mom's laptop and didn't go to like porn because, again, porn had been told to me that it was like a sex movie. And because it was a sex movie and because of my understanding of media, it wasn't real. So I went and found how-to guides. That's what I googled first too. How-to blowjob was my first Ask Jeeves. <laughs> Ask Jeeves was the spot too. Yep, yep. And I looked for ones that had like explicit photos and videos and stuff like that. And that went on for about a year before I got caught. Needless to say, there were some significant electronic privileges revoked, not because I had looked up anything, but because I had violated privacy of a person. So that was also a seminal moment of like, don't be unethical. Yeah, getting held accountable is great when we do it with love and just in respect of a boundary. Yeah. And so then going into middle school, I had a girlfriend and we would kiss and hold hands and cuddle. We broke up right before high school. And the night that we broke up that we were making out and stuff like that is kind of like a last make out kind of a thing. She was just like, yeah, you can take my shirt off. And I was just like, yes. <laughs> so I was like the first set of breasts that I had touched. And this is an interesting person, actually, because this person is probably the person that I've actually known the longest in my life. It is not my partner, but we hooked up throughout high school and then even after high school and after college. That's awesome. Yeah, that was an always an interesting thing of just like first kiss, first kiss. And then it wasn't even that long ago. It was only a couple of years ago that we played last. Wow. Did you early on identify that person as a partner, a sex friend? Like what was kind of your emotional and stated relationship with that person? Girlfriend. Girlfriend. Oh, it was a girlfriend. And, at the time. and okay. all of the miscommunications that a teenage relationship has with that. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, I never had a teenage girlfriend or boyfriend. So like I missed that everything. <laughs> Yeah, it's just one of those things where, you know, like I tried really, really hard if I remember like listening to like a teenage patient or something like that to like explain things to be like, you're wrong. And it's not like you're wrong. It's in this moment, you're right. Yeah. You just don't have the rest of the experience to understand that this might not be correct. Totally. Or, you know, something like that. Yeah, yeah. What do you remember about those early experiences with that first partner? Oh, they felt good. So that, that means that they were good. <laughs> and they felt good. And so that means that it was good. And so that was always kind of the thing. And I think that that really informed kind of like the gentleman Dom side where it's, I really want you to have a good time. And there are some things that I know that you're looking for that I can help you get to. Yeah. And if you're having a good time, that means that we're going to have a good time. It's my favorite sort of support. Yeah. And so I had multiple sexual partners. The first time I had sex was actually it was a relatively terrible experience. Ooh, tell us details, please. 
it was in my sophomore year. It was drizzly. It was with this girl that I'd been dating for a few months. And we had to like go to like a basketball game at the high school. And we were in like the woods behind the high school. Oh. with like a blanket. It was like lightly drizzling. It's just not awful. Later, I was just like, I'm so sorry. You were <laughs> literally know, outside in the rain? It was lightly drizzling. It was fine. Pacific Northwest. We're used to it. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm definitely from California. <laughs> yeah, it was not the most comfortable. <laughs> it's a certain type of romantic, I suppose. I just don't like being cold or, you know what I mean? Like mildly uncomfortable pain. Yes. Mild discomfort. This was definitely mildly uncomfortable for okay. all parties. Okay. <laughs> and so we had sex a couple times. My next girlfriend, probably a few months later, was the first time that I was just like, oh, look, we're in a bed with like nobody else at home for a few hours, you know, kind oh, yeah. of a situation. It's just like, oh my God, that's what you look like naked? Interesting. Oh, I'm realizing that I did not ask you about safer sex conversations and ideal versions of those. Did those early experiences include those? Yes, they did. Okay, awesome. And I also didn't ask you about sex ed in school. Oh! I don't remember anything about that. But did you get what you got one? I know that we had them. So my partner, we attended the same high school. They were younger than I was. And I actually knew their older sister first. Mm. But I don't remember anything about it. Probably because everybody in my class, you know, who I was there with, we were just like, yeah, we already do this. More of a hands-on learner. Yeah, exactly. But I know that she was like, oh, yeah, we had it. It wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. It wasn't necessarily abstinence only. Okay. Well, clearly it didn't scar you if it's not memorable. Okay. So safer sex wise. It is straightforward and frank. I work in medicine. It doesn't weird me out in any way just because it's just a thing that needs to kind of be discussed. So I tend to be very straightforward. I tend to be very frank. Can you give us the example? Because I think these are so helpful for people just in terms of normalizing it. It's just like, hey, you know, how's it going? I really, really like you. I think it would be really great if we got to go and have some fun. But I want to make sure that it's going to be fun for both of us now and later. Ooh, I love that. Just so you're aware, I get tested frequently each time those comes back. They have come back negative. I currently don't have any active exposures, and none of my current partners have any active exposures. And nothing that I am concerned about from a medical standpoint. And I hope that you are comfortable telling me from both a medical standpoint and even a social standpoint. Because I think that that's something that there are two aspects of. There is a medical standpoint and then there is a social standpoint. I think it is a lot easier for me as a medical provider to have some context to certain things. So like sex education for the most part in the United States consists of roughly the statement of if you have sex, you will eventually get an STI. Yep. That's just not accurate. Yeah. And they literally say like, and if you're a woman, you're more likely to. And it's just like, well, it doesn't have to actually be. No, that's not. Right. And in certain cases, yeah. But in other cases, it's a lot easier for a guy to. Again, I really am data driven. And so I actually just ha I had this conversation with my current girlfriend because she has a husband who also has another partner. My primary partner also has a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And so there's kind of this like five-way, not quite a polycule, but there's this five-way dynamic. Yeah. And they asked me, they're like, hey, what are the medical risks in this system? And I was just like, well, let me go look at some of my medical resources and stuff like that. And so there was just a bunch of interesting things that I, so like, for example, the risk of contracting HIV during vaginal penetration for a woman is one per 1,250 active exposures. So 0.08%. So when people have some context to what it is that you're discussing, it's way easier, but a lot of people just don't have that context. So safe sex can mean a bunch of different things. 
I am always a proponent of things like condoms and physical barriers, but it's a complicated situation. There are medical doctors who this is the only thing that they do, and they go to school for four years of medical school, four years of extra training, then four years of fellowship. And even they, their answer when you ask them like, hey, what's the risk of this going on? They're like, I don't know. Well, it's a hard question, too, because what is each individual's risk tolerance? And, you know, there's a subjective aspect to it all. Right. And I think that that's something that goes into that conversation, which is why I distinctly ask, is there anything medically I should know? And is there anything socially I should know? It tends to be pretty easy for me because, again, I interact with random strangers and talk about intimate things with them all the time. And I do it cross-culturally because I mostly work overseas. Mm. I figure if I can do this through Google Translate and a hand gesture with somebody who does not speak my language and is from a radically different culture, I can probably do it with somebody at a bar. Yeah. And it makes me happy when it happens too, just because generally my partner is put at ease and I do enjoy that. Yeah. That's beautiful. And it's trust building. Yeah. So even if it's going to be a situation where it's like, hey, we're going to have some like really kinky top bottom play, you know, and in 10 minutes, the power dynamic is going to radically shift. For now, you and I are equals. Let's figure this out together. Beautiful. Shame a meter to one. Shame a meter to one. Tell us first about the things in your intro. You're a gentleman dom. How did it come about? When did you realize it? So my first girlfriend later, I was maybe 20 or so. She's the one that kind of introduced me to kink in any real form by being like, hey, I want to hook up and stuff like that, but I need to feel used. Here's how you can help me feel that way. And here's some limits. Oh, maybe I could learn from her. That's really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And so there were a couple of sessions of just like trying things. And at that time, so I had already started work as a firefighter EMT. I was working on my more advanced medical training. And so I was already very used to being in charge of a situation. And that really helped. And medical providers have the ability, if they use it properly, which so many of us don't, it's really obnoxious to see. We have the ability to be extremely confident and in charge of something while being empathetic. And the more and more I research into like kink and dom stuff and like reading people who have a lot of experience and learning from their mistakes is this idea that a really good dom or top will have this confidence in knowing that they're going to be delivering what the sub or bottom needs and wants. And so this person really helped me explore that kind of stuff. And it wasn't something that I was actually exploring very much with my primary partner. Mm. It was just a very different dynamic. And around that time, primary partner and I, we would hook up with other people off and on. And we, for a while, went through this sequence of opening up the relationship, closing the relationship, opening up the relationship, closing the relationship. It then turned into like, because I started traveling a lot for long periods of time, I'd be deployed for five, six months. During that time, it was open. But when we had the time together to be around each other and to dedicate time to each other, it was closed. Yeah. So that was kind of a very interesting aspect. And it's only been in the last year, actually, that my primary partner and I have actually started playing around with kink in any way. Oh, wow. Otherwise, it was very, very sexy. Yeah. I, I wouldn't necessarily say it was like vanilla sex, but it was not a dedicated exploration, which I had been doing with other people. I want to ask a couple detailed context, fill in the gap questions. It sounds like... I hear that you open and close the relationships, but it sounds like the initial, the fact that you had a primary implies that there was an openness even at a pretty young age. Yes. We started dating when we were 18 Okay, and it was kind of always assumed that it was kind of be kind of open. In fact, actually I was with another partner hooked up with my current primary partner 
and was like, oh my God, I'm that person. And it was not explicitly cheating, but it also wasn't explicitly ethically correct for me to do. So I ended up going and breaking up with this other person. And I really did like my primary partner more. Mm. And I didn't want to string along somebody who I knew this was not going to work kind of a situation, which is really funny because two years later, we ended up having a whole series of threesomes. All together? Yeah. What? How did that happen? Will you? Can you jump there? Yeah. My primary partner and this ex-girlfriend had a class together and they knew each other. They'd known each other, you know, kind of before as well. And we were all at the same university and just one thing led to another. And yeah. Wow. How was that for you? It was really fun. My first person was in high school. You started telling a story about your first time having lots of people. Was that that? Uh, yeah, well, there was a bunch of people and we were all kind of doing this cuddle puddle type situation, you know, just as teenagers tend to do, where it's just like, you have a large room and five teenagers and they all end up in one corner. And so we all went to sleep in this one big room and I had this one girl on one side, this other girl on another side, and both of them started like running their fingers over me and stuff like that. They managed to miss each other in the dark, like three or four times. And my heart is just pounding. <laughs> And I'm just like, oh my God, if one of them is just like, hey, we should go to another bedroom. Just like, what am I going to say to the other one who's also starting to feel me up? And eventually their hands met, then they giggled. And then they literally both got up and were just like, dragged me out of the room. It was hilarious. It was absolutely hilarious. And I was just like, oh, I'm not going to pass up this opportunity. Wow. And then did you know what to do? Did they like tell you, did they use you? Like how, what was the dynamic after that? Where did you go? I don't know, free for all. It's just this massive like limbs, mouths, <laughs> penises, wow. breasts everywhere. That's awesome. Okay. It was really great. It was really, it was really fun. And then even in my early 20s, having multiple threesomes with multiple different partners and my primary partner. Okay, that was my next question. Was that was not the first threesome you'd had with that primary partner? Oh no, that was actually the first one. Oh. And that actually kicked off a year-long flurry. Threesomes with a variety of different people. That's awesome. Okay, but before that, separately, not with your primary partner from tracking, you also had threesomes with other people throughout. Yes. <laughs> How are you? Are you just really good at like meeting and finding people? Like, do you just have a ton of social ease, or what's your internal experience like there? I am a horrendously anxious introvert who has been trained to be confident. So I love the idea that like polyamory is, is introverts passing off extroverts to each other so they can have time to like sit down and read a book. That is entirely. <laughs> That's also what I want. That's why I, I keep thinking, I'm like, I can't be unsingle. Like I need time. I need spit. Like I've just been thinking about it so much. I'm about to turn 33 and I'm like, I don't know. Having another person in here to live with me. I don't know. Oh my God, that's hilarious. Whenever my primary partner right now, my wife is just like, hey, I'm going to go to so-and-so. I'm just like, great, <laughs> leave. That is amazing. Is it effortful to be a person that's trained in confidence? Like, is that effortful or is that why you need the alone time? Or is it just balanced at this point? I don't know because it's very difficult for me to not be this way because I started so early with like being a firefighter and being an EMT and then medic. I started that when I was 18. My brain still had another five, six years of development. And so I had a bunch of really great instructors who were just like, you're confident. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm confident now. <laughs> yeah. But no, that makes a huge difference. And that was it. So that brings up the idea of like how I experience the power dynamic between being a top versus a dom. And I do think that there's a difference between topping and doming. Ooh, please expand. 
So like, I think that if I was to meet somebody new and we wanted to do some really kinky things where there was a power difference, to me, that's the difference between a top and a bottom. A dom and a sub is a much more deep emotional relationship mm. that has a lot more depth and potential for harm. So like, I'm happy to do some really kinky things with certain people, but we might not get as deep as you would get with somebody who it's like, oh yeah, I've been with this person and playing with them for a year. And we've really set up this exact dynamic. But one of the things that I've heard a lot of other doms refer to and talk about is this idea that in the power exchange, they're getting this power from their bottom and their sub, and they're kind of feeding off of that. I have never felt that mm. ever. What I have felt, what that power dynamic is, is I don't see them as giving up power for me to use. I feel that they're giving up power for me to like hold an escrow. And at the end of the scene, I give it back because for me, any dom sub, any top bottom relationship has always been very, very clear at the start. You and I are equals and we're partners in this. And whatever happens in the scene is not representative of how I see you as a person. Yeah. And so in that way, I will happily hold on to your power. If you'd like to give this up, I will happily hold on to it and I will guard it and I will keep it nice and safe. And as soon as you are done, and as soon as we are done and we have had our good time, I'm going to hand this back because I really want us to be just us. Yeah. So that's kind of how I see that. And I think that that comes from that confidence. And that was born from that early understanding that power dynamics is a thing. Consent is a thing. And you just have to be extremely responsible with the emotions, the feelings, kind of the soft skills that come with having a partner. Yeah. Yeah. So that emotional side really came from my primary partner. Okay. So even though she and I weren't necessarily playing inside of a kink-based kind of relationship, the understanding of how empathy works and stuff like that, which can actually be very difficult for me. On the Myers-Briggs scale, I've nailed INTJ. Oh, me too. <laughs> every single time since <laughs> I was 18. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, I, I literally will get texts in the middle of parties by my partner being like, please don't be a robot. Or my favorite was one time when I was in medical school, I came home and I knew I had to meet her for a art gallery opening kind of a situation because she exists in the art space. And she had picked out the clothes for me to wear, which was great because I don't care. Ideal. I would have shown up in t-shirt and sandals. People are like, no, put clothes on all the time. I know. Like, it's, fine. I know. I don't know why. But there was a note on it. I was just like, hi, hope your shift went well. Here are the clothes for the night. Please be normal. <laughs> so I think that emotional aspects of things like I could have this wonderful, incredibly deep emotional relationship with my wife, but there was still the ability to go and interact with other people in a way that I can't interact with my wife because they're not my wife. Yeah. You know, they're, they're two completely different people. And so again, as a scientist, I love this term, but every person is an N of one. It's very difficult to compare two people because they're just so different. They're their own entity. They're their own experience. And so I think for me, if I can come up with a model or a plan to put everybody at ease and get certain pieces of information, such as, what are you into? Yes. Yes. That's so much more interesting than comparison, too, because it's like, it's not yes. like, oh, which one's better? It's like, okay, what gifts do you have? Okay, what's your creativity? Okay, what do you want? Okay, what do you, okay, you're, and then that's how we figure out the jewels that we can all create together. Exactly. Okay, so sexually speaking, if I heard you correctly, a year ago, you started getting a little bit kinkier with your primary partner. But prior to that, you discovered your kinky gentleman dom side and played with other people kinkily? Correct. How is that? 
Yeah, it's great. So there's a comment that I have who's absolutely wonderful. Their comment because we only work with each other in disaster zones. What? What? Yep. <laughs> and she and I have had a sexual relationship almost the entire time when we first connected in a disaster zone. And that has been nothing but a kinky relationship. Whoa. How does that fit into your like disaster zone work life? Like, Oh, so one thing that I think that a lot of people, it's this quasi open secret, especially medical personnel. We're all freaks. (laughs) Generally speaking, we're all freaks. So like during the few years that I was with the fire department and taking patients constantly to the ER and interacting with those ER nurses of all sexes in all varieties and all flavors, there's a lot of hakey panky. Wow. And if anybody's like, no, there's not, this just means you're not part of that. The international side of things. So I think one of the things that people forget about is that like in an international kind of disaster, like a humanitarian disaster or just a natural disaster, it's really stressful. I was going to say sex completes the stress cycle. It's one of the ways. Human touch is important. Exactly. And so like for me personally, sex has always been a radical aspect and a major aspect of my stress relief and my dealing with certain things. And so in these disaster zones, it is really not uncommon for it to nearly be a polycule level type situation. And it's always between providers. But this is one of the things I really like about sex is that it's such a universal thing. So I do a lot of work in refugee camps. And one of the main questions that were asked is, can we provide birth control? And a lot of people will be like, oh, these you know people are like fleeing their homes and stuff like that. And they're living in tents. Is that really something that like they need to think about? It's like, well, yes, because yeah. they're fleeing their homes and they're living in a tent with the love of their life, probably. And they have nothing to do. Yeah. They're going to be having a lot of sex. And that's just constant. Totally. <laughs> so the three kids I've delivered have all been in refugee camps kind of wow. a situation. Okay. And getting contraception is always just a massive aspect of we think about. And then on the aid worker side, yeah, it's constant rampant. And when you start to work with some of the same people and stuff like that, these relationships will kind of get born and go through their own little tiny life cycle. And then everybody goes away because, you know, you deploy for three months, you go away and then an earthquake hits a different part of the globe. And so you go to that and then you are like, oh, hey, look who it is. Wow. That's weirdly similar to the entertainment industry, but we usually call it a showmance because it's, you know, you're on a show or a set in a theater show for a certain amount of time. And then it's and you might get cast with them again on a future thing. But that's a more intense version. You know, I, so this is the part that I wonder is that I, you know, to me, the idea of like, you know, meeting somebody in like a theater production or something like that and sleeping with them to me is just like super intense. You think it's easier to like rescue people's lives with people you're fucking than to do with a show on stage? Oh, yeah. So much easier <laughs> because with the show on stage, like you have to interact with other people and other people are going to see you. And again, you, you're, you're starting to see the introvert in me uh-huh. just mm-hmm, be mm-hmm. like terrified. Which is probably one of the reasons why one of my kinks can be a little bit of that exhibitionism, just because it like scares me a little bit. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, might as well try. Where has that exhibitionism come out? I think it comes out pretty lightly <laughs> compared to a lot of experiences that even I've heard on this podcast. Well, you have the background of being extremely conscientious and thoughtful about like I think I would be more of an exhibitionist if I had like security of willing audiences, you know? <laughs> That might actually be the difference. I might actually be more comfortable with that and just haven't gotten to experience that. Yeah. But, you know, like in cars, driving around, I really like Roadhead, you know, up against large windows and hotels. 
Airbnbs kind of all over the world that, you know, I've lived in. Or what's really fun is this one place we used to call it the late night shuffle because we were all sleeping in a variety of tents and we each had our own large, like four person base camp level tent, but there was, you know, 30 or 40 of them kind of this little tent village that we had set up. And we had a quasi like, you know, it's time to go to quiet time. Everybody's in bed kind of a thing by like 9.30-ish or so because we were waking up early. And then every night at 10, you would hear <laughs> like multiple tents opening up. And then there was always the question of just like, huh, I wonder who's going where? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and then you would set it up too. And so you might hear somewhere and, and you'd be like, oh, I wonder if that's the person who's going to be spending the evening with me. And, you know, then they don't. And you're like, oh, dang it. Or they do. And you're like, oh, this is exciting. So do you bring like kinky implements? What do you do? So this is another really interesting thing about what I think my development on the kinky dom side has been, because I've never had the ability to access toys and stuff like that, because you just can't bring them to a lot of countries. That's what I was wondering about. Okay. So I'm very, very good at using everyday instruments. I was going to say, so are you like inherently into medical play? I am actually absolutely not. It's a really bad joke just because you have access to implements. What do you use instead? Well, so like I'll use some of the medical implements, like, you know, like if there's tools and stuff like that to use, but it's much more of a, I don't know. I tied somebody up with a lamp cord once. Ooh, not plugged in though, right? No, not plugged in. Okay, okay, nice. So yeah, so now in the last few years, my schedules and stuff like that have gotten to become much more regular. And so I have a very good understanding of when I'm going to be leaving and when I'm not and that kind of thing that goes with getting into these more specialized teams. I've gotten a chance to be able to actually have something. So like Shibari, you know, I'm getting into Shibari. So I have all the abilities to do things like repelling, tech rescue, all of that kind of stuff. So the knots and everything are just like, eh, whatever, you know, that's second nature to me. It's the process though, and the ability to have like different types of ropes and actually have ropes that is meant for this, which is really fun. One of the earliest things though that I've done, and I've never really been able to go to like workshops or anything just for mostly schedule and because I'm introverted, but I did get to go to one where I was actually one of the speakers and it was a little talk on how to cause pain, but not damage. Nice. And as a medical provider, I'm aware of some very interesting ways to cause pain that does not actually leave damage done at all. A medical provider and a sadist. Yes, go on. Yeah. (laughs) So actually, it was really interesting that I had this one incredibly experienced sub, absolutely a masochist, you know, the kind of person who is just like, hey, you want to put some car batteries to your nipples? She'd be like, yeah, you know, that level of just like knows what they're doing. That's a thing you actually can do just to, I have not had that opportunity. No, 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 no. I strongly advise you not to do that. But I was going to say, let's be really clear right here right now. Okay, cool. (laughs) No, no, very, very clear. Do not do that. (laughs) Okay, cool. (laughs) Glad I asked. Do not play with electricity. (laughs) But just an incredibly experienced masochist. And I said, I will bet you a dollar that you will use the pre-agreed safe word in less than one minute. You're a scary gentleman, Dom. (laughs) Yeah. And they were like, okay, can I get worked up first? And I'm like, yes, you can. Because I wanted them to actually be able to kind of be in the space where they would be able to receive that amount of pain. Yeah, yeah. And it took me about 15 seconds. Wow. And they gave in. And I used a pen. A P-E-N or a P-I-N? P-E-N. Wow. They were like, okay. And they had their support system and everything. You know, there is this workshop and everything, you know. And they came up and they were just like, holy crap. (laughs) And I was just like, yep. And they're like, there's not even a bruise. And I'm like, nope. And the other fun thing with that one in particular was that immediately, as soon as you stop doing it, it completely stops the pain. Holy fuck. 
Yeah. So there's very little kind of residual and that's working with fingernails oh. and the cuticles. Oh. And so that was a really fun experience. And then, you know, a lot of people have little spiky wheels and stuff like that. And I only got my first little spiky wheel two months ago to play with. Because you know how to use a pen. Because I know how to use a pen. So, if, you know, why would I spend the money to <laughs> get something, you know, like that? But I would say six months ago, my wife and I changed the dynamic of our relationship, where as opposed to going through these open, closed, open, closed situations, we were going to try to be open in a more sustainable way. Mm where like we could be in the same place geographically, but still see partners, which had not really occurred before. And so I met my latest girlfriend partner in a way that I did not think I would. It just became this amazingly crazy, emotionally romantic relationship with somebody who I was just like, I'm going to go and play a board game with you, you know, (laughs) kind of a situation. And she's exploring her kinky side kind of for the first time. So I've gotten a bunch of new implements. She had never gone to a sex store with somebody else. And so I was just like, here we go. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Fuck yeah. Great date. And so that was like our second or third date. Nice. (laughs) Like physical in-person date. You know, now I do have some more implements, but I think my dom side is much more on the mental. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. What are your favorite domly activities? Can you just give us some flavors? You've given us some good snippets so far, but like more details, please. I really like empowering the bottom. So if the bottom is like, I'm not sure if I could do this, to be like, I think you can. Let's see if you can. And that can take on, you know, there are times where it's just like, you know, some people will be very, very responsive to being like, you will do this. I'm one of them. It's hugely supportive in my life. Belonging and someone believing in me. And the more that I like listen to, I was just listening to a podcast on learning with Lex Friedman, like how to learn math or whatever. And the educator that he was interviewing, she studies how to teach kids math. And they were talking about the idea of having a mentor figure, right? There was a study they did where a teacher wrote on the piece of paper, I'm telling you this because I believe in you. And those kids did better in school. And I now have that experience with my former master, like gaining that confidence and then finding a place of belonging. So that's incredibly hot and supportive. Yeah. And and I think that it can be really fun to change it up. So one of the things that's really helpful to me is to notice the difference of when I can be that hard discipline aspect and then get to the point where I can tell that the next thing that they need is that slightly more supportive, like, no, 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 no. I'm here with you. I know what this is doing to you. You can do it. You can keep doing this. And this is all you. And so I really like the idea of play, which makes people feel that empowerment, that powerful creature that we all have inside. I really like to help awaken that in people. And then if I really want something, it's normally much more on like the service side. I really like the servicing, like you're mine. I can do whatever I want with you. You're going to do it. Okay. What kind of things do you like to order people to do for you? Oh, just different like types of oral. And I enjoy curating experiences for other people. And so I very much enjoy curating that experience for myself. Oh, yay. I'm so happy to hear that. Tell us more. Having somebody who both my partners are actually really great at this, where I can just be like, here's what I need. Mm. What I need is I need for you to pretend that we are at a sex resort and you are on the menu and I can just order you up. You're going to come in and your only job is to help me do whatever I want. If that means I need to be getting off myself while you nibble on my ear, then that is what you're going to do. And 99% of the time they're like, hell yeah. The other 1% of the time they're like, I can't do that right now, but like we can schedule that for later tonight. (laughs) That's amazing. I know from listening to the podcast, you're always interested in butt stuff. I am. That's always fun to kind of be fingered on my end 
I mean, there's definitely this aspect of I'd like people to have this really good time and have this really curated experience. And then when it comes to what I'm looking for, it's just like, I would very much like you to be very subservient in that like sex servant kind of way. Kinky stuff kind of like that. Even with that, maybe it's an inherent power dynamic, but I know a lot of sex workers. And so, I, you know, even if you hire somebody for sex, I don't, you know, that doesn't make them subservient to you. Yeah, no. Like when we go to the doctor, they're in charge just because we're paying the like. Right, exactly. <laughs> I do enjoy receiving. I especially enjoy receiving like fingers or small cylindrical items. And I am happy to deliver and to go down on and do whatever for somebody else. Okay. The biggest thing is though that I'm going to be in control of that. And that's just kind of that top side. Absolutely. What does being in control in that way look like for you? Does it look like restraining them? Does it look like... It can be restraining them. I think that restraints are super, super fun. Again, as somebody who likes the mental side of things, I like to play games where they have to have their, say, their arms above their head, that they are unrestrained. Yeah, that's harder. And so then it becomes much more of the discipline side where it's like, we're going to stop if you bring your arms down. And inevitably, what I'll do is I'll set the parameter of just like, you have three oopsies. Oh, three oopsies! Oh, I love oopsies! I've never heard that before. Yep. So, oh crap, my arm came down. It's like, that's right. That's your one. And then doing something to them and they just get so into it that their next arm comes down. It's just like, no, no, no. The D in BDSM is <laughs> very much there. And it's like, okay, great. You know, and then they know that like, oh crap, I'm on the third one. Like, I can, you know. But I like pushing them to the point where they're just like, okay, for God's sakes, stop. No more orgasms. Amazing. My most recent partner, she can orgasm like kind of continuously. But she's also new to kink. And she's actually a person that drops into subspace faster than anybody I've ever seen. Because she's new at it, she just drops into it and she just goes away. And I have to be really careful to notice. I'm just like, oh, yep, she just went away. Like completely, she's gone at this point in time. I can't do anything else because like she has no idea what's going on. So in that case, consent is for me automatically rescinded because they're not in a place where they can make a cognizant decision. And so then it's like, okay, great. I plan to be doing the scene for the next hour. We're only 20 minutes in, but let's just call it now and start the aftercare procedures and stuff like that just a little bit early. And then, you know, she'll come out of it. And normally for her, for example, an aftercare is something that needs to be tailored to the person. Afterwards, she tends to get very shaky because she has a hard time breathing when she's orgasmed. So from a medical perspective, all of the carbon dioxide buildup is going to result in her hands and her fingers being tingly. And so she'll sit there just kind of like looking at her hands because they're all tingly, which is super cute. And when she stops doing that, I know that she's coming out of subspace. And so we calm her down like with that. We put a heavy blanket on her generally while I go and get either the shower or a bath ready. And then she goes and she sits into there. And then that temperature change helps the transition mentally. Mm. And then another thing that I do specifically for her is I always brew coffee, not for her to drink, but for her to smell. So I think things like smell are often overlooked aspects, not of scenes, because there's a lot of great information on like using all of the senses and scenes. But if you're going to use a sense in a scene, you should apply that sense to the aftercare as well. You have to curate the whole experience. Correct. So she ended up being in a bath for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. So literally the procedure is give her like five minutes or so with like a heavy blanket on, get her into a bath for about 10 minutes with the coffee smell, bring her out, put her into like a bathrobe or like one of my medic t-shirts kinds of things, sit her into a chair. And then she gets to watch an entire episode of Rick and Morty, which is her favorite show. Love. I've only watched a couple of episodes, but I need to go back and watch from the very beginning because it apparently is very much how my brain already works. 
Yep. <laughs> and by the time she's done with that Rick and Morty, she's back. And it's just like, well, that was awesome. I don't even know necessarily what happened, but that was great. I went away. And I'm like, I know you went away. Okay. I want to ask about the going away because I think it's like a little bit different from any experiences I have with subspace. So can you speak more specifically about like what you, with a partner that sounds like you have tons of trust built up with like what your understanding of her experience is? And what you as a Dom are looking for. Sorry, it's obviously framed in your experience of your partner's experience. I was trying to articulate that you're not speaking on her behalf. (laughs) Absolutely. So from everything that I can understand, and I have no reason to doubt the veracity of this, the act of not having to make decisions, she makes a lot of decisions in her everyday life. And therefore, the act of not needing to allows for her to enter into a state where she's just fine and happy and floaty. and she will drop so far down. The first time I ever realized, oh, wow, you didn't respond was I did a cup slap to her inner thigh and it produced an immediate petechiae bruise, you know, a small little blood vessel being popped. And I don't care who you are, that generates a response. And there was no response. Oh, wow. Thank God you pay attention. And she was just like, me, <laughs> just smiling and grinning. And I was just like, uh, I'm not so sure about this anymore. <laughs> Yeah. And I was just like, let's just be on the safe side. And the other thing that happens is she tends to get into her head a lot. And when that happens, she forgets to verbalize things. During a scene, she gets into her head. Yeah. And she enjoys being there. She's an introverted person. And so as she'll say, she forgets that I'm not in her head with her. So there was one scene that we did where she was, I was like, you know, that was great. I'm really happy that you enjoyed it. Can I have more feedback, you know, next time? Kind of the green, yellow, red. And she goes, oh, I was saying green the whole time. And I'm like, no. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) You know, and so that's actually something that we've worked on, just having that quick, like, still green. And she's done a lot of work, too, just again, as she's exploring this whole new side of things. The comet who I normally see when deployed, our entire relationship has only ever been kinky. And so kind of green, yellow, red is just a baked into aspect of what we do on kind of everything, even as an inside joke. You know, it's like, how's your dinner tonight? Pretty green. Pretty green. I love that. More greens in life, please. And I like just love the framework of that. I'm thinking about how my master trained me, my former master trained me to always say thank you to like every pain I received. And that, and I'm realizing that's like a check-in way. Because when I stopped saying thank you, it's usually when I was like at an edge or was sort of like, do I like this? And it was a really useful way for me to be like, does this really feel like something I'm thanking him for? Yes. And I think that the thank you part, especially if the relationship is or the scene that's being played is in line. With it the made theme. sense for the context. It's perfect. Yeah. It's brilliant. I do enjoy coming up with little things that are still scenes that mean green, you know, this means yellow, this means red, and then safe word. Because I do think that red does not necessarily mean safe word, actually. So in the way that I normally talk with my partners, green is, yes, I like this. This is good. Yellow is, I am not sure about this, or we're getting, it's a lot. And I think that that's a better way of having somebody describe it. It's just, this is a lot. lot, And then red is, I don't like that but not stop, not a full stop. And then a safe word is full stop. And usually I just to be comfortable myself, you know, as a Dom to be comfortable. If that safe word is used, that's a full stop that initiates aftercare. And then that dovetails into my next question of like, what is top space like for you? Do you have a top space? Do you have a Dom space? Does that exist for you? Yeah, it's kind of hard for me to think about that just because so much of what I do, I'm in control. You know, when I'm performing a rescue, you know, I have performed rescues at roughly 100 feet on a cliff 
and I'm in control. Wow. Simple as that. There's just no question. It's I'm in control. And so I definitely feel that way if I'm in control in a scene, especially with somebody that I have a very strong emotional romantic connection to. I definitely have dom drop and top drop. And so I recognize that what I am doing is exciting those endorphins and those neurochemicals because when I don't have it, then I feel the oncoming, that like depression, that down, that moodiness, that kind of a thing. And sometimes, and it used to be actually my primary partner who would be kind of the recipient of that because I would have dom drop a few days after seeing somebody and she'd be like, oh, you seem kind of down. And like, I am. And she's like, well, don't forget that you just did an incredibly large, emotionally burdensome for yourself activity where yes, the other person had a wonderful job, but you still expended a lot of energy to provide that and you should forgive yourself. So I know that that it happens. It just feels natural to me though, to do it, but obviously it feels good because I keep going back to it. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) What do you do to take care of yourselves during those hard times? So because of my job and my experience, I have a a very good working relationship with post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. And I say a good working relationship because it's not something that can be stopped. It is an injury. It is a moral injury that is dealt to you, but it can be managed. For me, I've spent a very, very long time. I've had 10 plus years of regular counseling. I teach. And so when I have my new EMTs or my new paramedics and they ask me, what's the first thing I should do on the first day? One of the three things that I tell them is after your first ever shift, go to counseling. Beautiful. Just straight off the bat. Therapy is amazing. Counseling is amazing. It's great. It has significantly helped me. And so a lot of times when I feel that dom drop, it feels similar to the depression side of the PTS, minus nightmares and all that kind of other fun stuff. I know I'm an introvert. I know I need time by myself. And so both my partners, my wife and my girlfriend, we have reassurance lists that are on Google Docs Amazing. that are continuously updated. So if one day I'm like, you know, number nine isn't really doing it for me anymore, but I think something else might, then I delete number nine and add that in. So I can say, hey, you know, partner, I'm feeling down today. This evening, I intend to take some time for myself. I would love a reassurance from you. And they can go pick something off of that reassurance list, knowing that I will accept any of those types of things. And in that way, I don't have to make the decision because again, I spend so much time curating other people's experiences. I don't want to to curate my own caretaking. And so I can say, I'm going to go read and I'm going to be in this spot and I'm going to go read. And normally there's like a fire pit or something like that. And I'm going to be reading by. And some of those reassurances, you know, one of them For my wife is I really like it when she makes me a nice cocktail because I'm the one that makes all the cocktails and stuff. And so it's just like, you know what? I'm going to be sitting out here. I'm going to be reading a book. And then to have your partner come out with like this perfectly made to your specifications, old fashioned to sip on for the rest of the evening is like, yeah, this is good. So I think that you just have to be intentional Mm -hmm. and you have to be very clear with the person who's going to help you get to a better place and a place where the self-care is useful, in my opinion, you just have to ask them. Most humans will. It's normally not the issue of the person who wants to do it. It's an issue of the person who is receiving it saying, you know what I really need? I literally just need you to sit here while I watch Rick and Morty and hold my hand. You can be reading yourself, you you know, just your physical presence nearby. You don't have to actually put any energy into me. I just want to hold your hand while I watch Rick and Morty. And that's going to make me feel better tomorrow. 
yes, it's like we just need to normalize communicating with each other about how we need to get taken care of. Like, that's so hot, but basic. But it's like so, ah. <laughs> uh. You're also giving me hope for like introverted partnership. I'm like, okay, maybe I could see how that could work. Yeah, it does sound <laughs> kind of nice. Okay, we'll think about it. I, I'm also very clear sometimes of just like, my wife is very extroverted. <laughs> so I'll just be like, I'll be very clear with you. I cannot deal with you right now. Okay. <laughs> Come back in an hour. Okay. Yeah. Or she'll look at me every once in a while and she'll be like, am I being a little extra right now? And I'm like, you are for me. And she's like, okay, I'm going to go like do something else. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> and then, you know, I'll paddle you later tonight for that. I love it. <laughs> okay. So we just heard a little bit about how you like to get taken care of in those times where you're feeling depleted. When would you say you feel the most desired slash appreciated, sexually speaking? Following a scene where my partner comes out feeling more powerful is the time that I feel most like I have done something. Mm. You know, I think that sex, it feels good. That doesn't necessarily mean orgasm, even for me. There are times where it's just like, I would like to be serviced right now for myself, where orgasm is not the goal. And I'll even tell my partner that of just like, hey, just so you know, you're going to service me for the next half hour kind of a thing in any way that I would like in a variety of different manners. And I'm just going to use you. That kind of free use, I like that, especially like super consensual free use is just totally. I agree. That's like probably my top turn on. Yeah. Oh, it's so wonderful. I think a really good one was like my wife wanted to have like kind of that, you know, I want to feel connected to you, sex. And I was just like, you know, I'm really amped up because I just come back from like a training. So the work part of my brain has, was like super, super activated. Yes. Just like, if you give me like half an hour of mine, I will be able to connect with you yes. afterwards. And, you know, I just need to kind of get this out of my system where I am still in control, but can transition from a spot of me being in control to one where I can be partnered with you at an emotional, romantic level. Not only do you have to communicate, you have to practice it. And I think that the practice part is what a lot of people don't feel like they have the time for because they're not willing to ask another person to bear with them while they make mistakes. Right. And it's uncomfortable to make mistakes. And we get yelled at a lot. I get yelled at a lot when I make a mistake. Yeah. And that exchange of communication is something that is just vitally important. Yes. And the other side of what I'm hearing in that story is that you are able to notice what's happening inside of yourself. And that is a piece that I think, in my personal experience, is missing from pretty much anyone I've ever met on a dating app, for sure. And, you know, it's probably the reason that I'm still single is that I have not yet found someone who can communicate at the depth and with the explicitness that I would need to be like, yeah, you can be here every day. Yeah. You know, I'm deploying in just a few days. And so I had a frantic overnight date with my girlfriend, which can be difficult because she has her own life and yeah. husband and kids and stuff like that. Yeah. Schedules are real. Oh my God. Our group text is literally called the Spinning Plates Coalition. <laughs> you guys are cute. Okay, great. So, you know, I just had this frantic experience and she shared with me that she was just like, hey, you know, so, you know, like with you being gone, with this being the first like long deployment that we're having in this relationship, we thought we were going to have actually some time to practice this, but then the war kicked off. And so we kind of just don't have the opportunity to practice it. She's a little bit older than I am. She's like, it is my concern that I am too old for you and you will lose interest in me. Keep this in mind that she's only like 38. Yeah, but that's such a vulnerable thing to feel and share. Absolutely. And it was just wonderful. And the robot inside of me immediately looked at her and went, that's dumb. Yeah, I'm going to be back. And she started laughing hysterically. And she was just like, you know, the reason that I'm with you is because you're the only person that I've been with who I'm going to share. Like, hey, the narrative in my head is telling me this and I think it's wrong. 
And when I tell you, you're just like, yeah, that's pretty dumb. Yeah, gosh, I wish I could meet people that I could literally just say. I mean, I have a, I have a couple of them, but not in a sexual romantic partnership. Like I have a few people that I can say exactly what I'm thinking without trying to figure out how to be diplomatic and failing half the time. When you're away for those periods of time, I'm hearing that you often are able to meet up with other sexual partners. Is sexting a thing for you? Sometimes I tend to be more concerned with the emotional aspects of my relationship when I'm gone. Sexting, I do enjoy. I almost only do it, though, when I'm home. Okay. Ooh. Do you sext your wife when she's at work? I try to. She works from home, so it's a lot easier to go up and annoy her, you know, physically. <laughs> oh, oh, even better. Way better than sexting. Just touch her with hands. Yeah, exactly. Or what do you do? How do you annoy her? I'll send her dirty messages. I, I really enjoy sending, like, pictures or gifts of something that I would like to do, but obviously, like, I can't take a photo of me doing it because it requires somebody else. So I'll send like a whole series of like gifts to her like while she's on like a work call kind of a thing and just watch her get redder and redder. Oh my God, that's hot. Which is always really fun. And then with two partners now, I was telling them I was getting off and they were kind of like helping me out, you know, via text and sexting and stuff like that. And I was just like, hey, do you want to like really quickly throw the video camera on? as I come and you can just like watch my face because you say oh. that you like really enjoy watching somebody's face when they orgasm. And so I'd literally just turn it on, <laughs> orgasm, and then like wave to them goodbye, turn it off. <laughs> and the first time that happened, they came back and I was like, that was one of the most weird, hottest things that we need to do all the time. Awesome. When I'm gone and I can hook up with somebody, a lot of times it is a very different relationship if I'm hooking up with somebody over there because it is a lot more kind of stress-based. Yeah. There's this aspect of in the face of these large disasters, you know, and human disasters, you just have this need to feel connected to people. And that can be sexual, that can be non-sexual. There are quite a few people who it's very difficult for them to, myself included, to sleep alone. Mm. It makes me nervous almost to sleep in a bed without somebody else. And a lot of times I work on teams where there are other women and we do have a no hooking up with other people on your personal team. Yeah. But it's not uncommon to queen size bed in the hotel, you know, both clothes, but yeah. we're just going to sleep in the kind of the same spot. And I think it, a lot of that goes back to almost that teenagers and they'll all end up piled on top of each other in the corner because it releases it serotonin, good. Yeah, it releases exactly. dopamine. Yep. And we call them endorphin dumps. Mm. And sometimes we'll, if somebody's being grumpy or something like that, we'll be like, you need an endorphin dump. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I probably do. And it's like, all right, well, you know, I can't help necessarily. Or if it's somebody who's not directly on your team with like a different org or something like that, you can be like, I can help with that. Yeah. And a lot of times they'll be like, yeah, come on, let's go. I like to say, because I've been listening to the Huberman Lab, which is my new favorite podcast. And so I like to say, could I offer you some neuromodulators? That's right. My medical brain is immediately like, uh, yes, I can. And in fact, which one do you want? You know, do you want some of that fight or flight? Do you want some of that cozy? You know, do you want to go cozy to hard? Cozy to hard is one of my favorite things to do, especially because it normally goes cozy, hard, and then back to cozy for aftercare. And so just the chemical experience that your body will go through during that is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, for me, my experiences have been transcendent. As you said, a lot of people have this kind of transcendent experience and a lot of people don't have massive amounts of dopamine or epinephrine dumped into their system deliberately. And it's so different when it's your choice to do it. Yes. And I think that's a huge aspect that allows people to kind of unlock the feelings of how they feel with themselves is they're like, I choose to have this crazy thing done to me. And then afterwards you're like, yeah, that was great. 
my personal experience with kind of like unlocking my own dopamine loops, it unleashed a level of curiosity because dopamine drives that seeking for less nerdy people listening. And so for me, it has really created this positive feedback loop of like what's there. And then I find it and it's a great reward. And then I get a new reward and I get a new reward. And so I am in this kind of like seeking mode. But at the same time, I'm in a mode where because I'm talking about it with people, I'm getting a lot of like positive social feedback as well. And so I think that my levels of just everything are kind of up and up. <laughs> Baselines are higher. I don't know. That's been, and that was one of the fun things to see with my girlfriend who's just getting into this is I think one of the reasons she drops so hard into subspace and takes a while to come out is because she's never been in a position where she's had to dump that much stuff. You know, she works in tech. She hangs out in front of computer screens for most of the day. So yeah, I think that that thrill aspect. And again, that's just a really fun thing for me to be able to help deliver. And I'm in a very privileged environment to where I've had this education, I've had this training and can kind of apply it in some really kind of fun, kinky ways. And I think a part of it is like, well, if medicine is at the heart being nice and doing good to another person, then okay, sex is an aspect of good medicine. Totally. And any good medical provider is going to tell you like, hey, this is an aspect of it. Whenever I have a new operator and they get all, you know, kind of agitated and you can tell that they're stressed out, you know, kind of a thing. It's just like, so when was the last time you got laid? And they're like, oh, it was just, you know, it was like before deployment kind of a thing. It's like, cool. And how often were you getting laid during that time? They're like, oh, like three times a week. It's just like, you think that that might be the problem? Yeah. It's so funny, in Kate Lister's recent book that's A History of Sex for Sale, Harlot's Whores and Hackabouts, she talks about how there's... Who who the fuck were... I'm forgetting who wrote that prostitution's the oldest profession. It was a writer, an author wrote it. And so that became kind of the common phrase. And she makes the point of like, well, actually, it seems like it's probably doctors and healers. But in my brain, I'm like, how the fuck is a healer different from a sexual practitioner? Yeah. And I fully admit, you know, I tend to see things much more from a Western scientific standpoint. When I meet partners and stuff like that who are much more based on, you know, for me, kind of the more natural things, it's very interesting to see that connection between the two and where one is like, yes, this is really good for explaining this. And then the other one is like, eh, we're not very good at explaining it. Where on other things, one side is like, we are great at explaining this. And on my side, it's just like, yeah, we got no idea. But it happens. Again, that's that's just another fun thing. I'm one of those people that will kind of always try something at least once, if only to experience it. I like to try it three times to see if I don't like it. If I don't like it three times, then I'm pretty good. But if I keep trying it and I'm still curious, I'll try it at least two more times. Yeah, that's and I think that's a super healthy way of going about a lot of things. I also just have to say, the longer I live in Los Angeles, the more I learn about woo stuff, like magic, woo, woo, whatever. Uh-huh. And then the more that I get into actual like science-based research and like academia, I'm like, oh, it's all the same. And magic is real, but magic is science. And science is my experience and my brain doesn't make, and we don't have the answer. Okay, okay, so let's have sex and yeah, then exactly. experience magic. Okay, so in terms of experiencing magic, what else sexually kink-wise like have we not heard about yet or that you want to explore going forward? Definitely lots more like threesomes and moresomes. Mm. What about penis owners? We haven't heard very much about penis owners on the bisexual um, side. Is he, does he feel left out? No, I don't know if I would be capable of having a long-term relationship with another penis owner. That's fine. But like for great moresomes. Yeah, for great more. Absolutely. I enjoy playing with them. 
they've always been much more of like a one night stand kind of situation or a casual situation. Again, with most general penis owners, I tend to be a little more introverted and hesitant around. Okay. And I'm always much more more comfortable in kind of that feminine energy, which is hilarious given the, what my job is. You know, it's just this hyper masculine, you know, alpha male where we do everything that we can constantly. You know, the, the difference between how I'm acting, you know, right now versus when I'm downrange is just insanely different. Really? Oh, it's yeah, because you know, in the text of what a human is. We highlight the aggression side and we bold and italicize it in my job Mm. for better or worse, more worse. (laughs) But I'm also privileged that I work on teams and an environment where we do recruit women and we do have women and those women are fully qualified operators and technicians. And so like my personally have kind of this rule where at least 40% of my team that I'm going to be on needs to be women. If I have any control in kind of choosing who's going to be on it. Mm -hmm. And just because the perspective and stuff is just so different, the way that women going through the exact same training that I have, the way that they internalize it tends to be different than I have, just like anybody does. And it's just a lot better because I fully admit to there are times where I just go full robot mode and I'm just like, I'm, you know, it's like, there's a door, I should go through the door. And, you know, meanwhile, one of my female team members, who's gone through the exact same training and in theory also has the same, like must go through the door, just blow down the door. It's just like, or we can try the handle. <laughs> can you just tell everyone what you told me right before we started recording? Yeah, sure. So recently I was promoted into a senior position in my team. And a lot of what that position does is just kind of manage like interpersonal stuff in the team. So if somebody has you know an issue with something, you know, I'm kind of their first contact before they start bothering officers or upper management. And when I went onto this new team, I decided to just kind of take a big risk and just be completely open and out with them with both being like bisexual and even things like if it permits, I tend to paint my nails. And so, you know, I show up to a training or something. It's like, yeah, my nails are painted. And that is just not anything that occurs in my business or related businesses. And the feedback has been exceptionally positive, (laughs) Yes, (laughs) which I don't, you know, again, like they're really good people. It's a phenomenal group of men and women who I work with. And they were just kind of like, yeah, we figured something was weird. Okay. (laughs) But then they'll ask like awkwardly, like ask questions and stuff like that. It's just like, well, how does this work? And, you know, inevitably it's this younger operator who's just like, well, how did you manage to get this to work? And it's just like, oh, let me tell you how I screwed it up the first couple of times. And so that's been a really good thing. But it also is kind of funny because, you know, you're with a bunch of hyper-masculine alpha males and like pretty woman walks by and they'll be like to each other, hey, look at, you know, she's pretty hot, you know, or we'll be out of bar or something like that. And the same kind of a thing. And now they've gotten comfortable to the point where, you know, they'll rib me and be like, look at this guy, Scott, like, what do you think of him? And I'm just like, (laughs) yeah, you know, let's go for that. And I think one of the cutest was this young guy mid-20s. He had just finished Pipeline and he was just like, I don't know how to be a wingman for you when it comes to guys. And I was just like, that is hilarious. I so appreciate you like willing to. I don't know myself. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to say with dudes that all they have to do is be like, my friend likes you. Like they can just, they just go up to each other. <laughs> if you know that that person's into dudes. I will say though, when I came out by to my parents, I was like 17. And I was anticipating it being like this big deal kind of a thing. So one morning while my mom was like making breakfast, my dad was like hanging out on the couch, like reading the comics in the newspaper. You know, I was just like, hey, just wanted to let you guys know that like, I think that I am bisexual. And they were like, "Uh uh-huh. And I was like, wait, 
What do you mean? Uh-huh. My dad said something along the lines of like, you painted your room purple. We had an idea. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's it? Like no drama or anything? And they're like, no, why? Yeah. And I'm like, okay. And I like started to walk away and they're like, oh yeah, actually there is something. Thank you so much for telling us. And now you cannot have either men or women in your room with the door closed. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first parents I've heard that figured that out with their queer kids. That is great. Okay. What else do we need to know about your sex life and or what are your hopes for it going forward? I just hope that I get to keep having awesome sex with awesome people. I feel like you will. I just suspect that you might. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping. I think that getting to continue to explore and kind of refine, you know, it's always fine tuning. The relationship that I have with my wife is not in any way, shape or form the same one that I had when we started dating. I hope you would both grow a little. Yeah, I, you know, I always like to say, you know, like this is version 34.3.7, Yeah, you know, and tomorrow's going to be 34.3.8. And that's just how I think about it. And so I just want to go and have more fun. I want to meet new people. And I hope that, especially with this podcast, that more people will listen and will realize that they are in no way, shape or form alone. And that a lot of other people are interested in a lot of the same things that they are. I'm deeply grateful for your share today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Do you have a sex question for me? I do. And it took me a while to come up with one because <laughs> listening to all the other podcasts, you know, there's some really good questions you've been asked. I know. My question for you is this. What makes you feel like a powerful creature sexually? And how has that changed for you over the years? What's changed that I'm noticing now acutely this week that I'm starting with because it feels so fresh and brand new. For the first time in my life, I am 